as many of you will recall, Sapir, it, it's actually a quarterly publication. Um, but after the harrowing events of October 7th, uh, we pivoted to produce content on a near daily basis and to start hosting virtual events on a near weekly basis. In early October, our current issue was all but complete. Um, but we decided to postpone the publication of the issue, which is focused um, on technology, by about a month and a half. And then last week, we finally released the publication. And I know I'm a little bit um, biased here, but I think it's an extraordinary, it's an extraordinary one. Because we look at the impact of the technological revolution on Jewish identity, on Jewish institutions, on theology, on education, on synagogues, on day schools, on camps, on the future of Jewish life. And so if you haven't yet, please visit sapirjournal.org to check out the essays, share it with your friends, share it with your colleagues, share it with your classmates, share it with your next door neighbors, and share with us some of your feedback. Uh, we will be sure to host virtual events um, on the topic in the new year. So please be on the lookout for that. But we couldn't end 2023 without delving into one of the most significant and of late charged topics of the day. And that's the perpetual battle over free speech on college campuses, especially with the backdrop of the war between Israel and Hamas, which is now in its 69th day. The topic of free speech in higher education is not particularly new. Debates over who can say what and in what fashion, it really roiled college campuses for decades. Saw so burst onto the scene in the 60s with student protests and civil unrest across the country, from Berkeley out west to Columbia out east. We saw efforts by administrations like the University of Chicago's Calvin Committee that developed guidelines for the roles that academic institutions should play in those environments. Highly charged topics from the Vietnam War to the Iraq War led to demonstrations, to sit-ins, to boycotts, the civil rights movement, to the Black Lives Matter movement, issues around diversity, equity, inclusion, issues around micro, uh, microaggressions. Who can say what to whom and in what fashion has been critical issue on college campuses for a long time? And universities, which are often petri dishes of society have the responsibility with determining how to contend with these issues and what environments they wanna foster for our future workforce, for future members of society, for future leaders. All of this came to a head in the days and weeks following the Hamas massacre on October 7th. Some student groups issued statements praising quote unquote the resistance. Some professors called the Hamas attack quote unquote exhilarating slogans like from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, or globalized the intifada became normative chants in quads and outside classrooms. Statements upon statements upon statements upon statements were issued. And we actually saw a lot worse, right? Students hiding in the library at Cooper Union, death threats posted online at Cornell, a student beaten with a stick at Columbia, a nose broken at Tulane. Institutions and individuals of all kinds responded to this growing toxic environment. Some law firms withdrew offers of employment. Some alumni withdrew from university boards. 
Some donors threatened to withhold funding and some universities kicked off chapters of groups like Students for Justice in Palestine. These are all illustrative examples of an environment that ultimately led to three university presidents testifying before the House of Representatives at a hearing that will be remembered, discussed, debated, and dissected for years to come, and, in, and also in a few minutes. Hmm. Um, but what's considered protected speech on campus? What crosses the line into harassment? What role should college administrators play? These are legal issues, but they're also moral issues, and they are fundamental to the health and the sanctity, not just the environment on college campus, but also our democracy as a whole. And that is why we are carving out time to discuss it today with two legal scholars who will help us unpack some of these questions, help us think through some scenarios, and help us consider where do, where do we go from here? All in 45 minutes. So Nadine Straussen is a senior fellow at FIRE, which is the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. She's also the past national president of the American Civil Liberties Union, known as the ACLU, and the author of multiple books, including Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. She is, perhaps the most important, the co-author of a piece in Sapir entitled, SJP Still Deserves Freedom of Speech. Nadine, welcome. So happy you are here. Thank you so much for having me, Hanan. And alongside Nadine is Ilya Shapiro. He's Director of Constitutional Studies at the Manhattan Institute and the author of the forthcoming book, Canceling Justice, The Illiberal Takeover of Legal Education. He wrote a piece in the Free Press entitled, Where Free Speech Ends and Lawbreaking Begins. Welcome, Ilya. Good to be so, with you, longtime reader. One of my New Year's resolutions is to, if you'll have me, is to uh, write something for Sapir, so. Well, you said that on the record and we'll give it a go. Um, I really appreciate it. I'm so glad that you are a reader and of course, um, part of the broader community. So we're honored really to have both of you here today. And I wanna start off this conversation with just, let's start with some guiding principles. And Nadine, uh, maybe let's start with you, uh, sort of back to basics um, and, then, and then we'll dive in. So within like a minute or two, can you just outline what does the First Amendment guarantee and how has it been interpreted by the courts, especially since I think like it was the, the 1927 opinion right by Justice Louis Brandeis that sort of shifted our, our thinking on this. Uh, what is in short protected speech? Thank you so much, Hanan. And I have to say, I too have been a very enthusiastic Sapir subscriber since the very beginning and very honored to have been published in it. Um, so the Supreme Court has said that the bedrock principle underlying freedom of speech is viewpoint neutrality or content neutrality. And of all the principles, since the Supreme Court says this is the bedrock, I wanna start there. And what that means is that government must remain neutral with respect to the viewpoint, the content, the message, the idea of the speech, no matter how loathsome and no matter how loathed that viewpoint or message may be, that alone is never enough to justify censoring it. As Louis Brandeis, the first Jewish justice of the Supreme Court said, in what was then essentially a dissenting opinion, only an emergency 
can justify suppression. Uh, instead, if the if there is if the speech so an emergency is if the speech considered not only based on its content or its message, but considered in its overall context, presents a specific, direct, imminent threat or directly causes harm, then and only then may you suppress the speech. Short of that, Brandeis also recognized that speech that doesn't satisfy this so-called emergency standard can do great harm, and he didn't say, therefore, we should do nothing if we can't censor it. Among other things, he said, the answer to evil counsels is good ones. So we have an affirmative duty to engage in counter speech. And if I may, you know, that's the title and thrust of my book, Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech not censorship and getting a little bit ahead. I think the problem with the college presidents was not that they incorrectly cited this free speech principles, but they didn't recognize the larger moral duty, which goes back to the very beginning of the framing of the emergency concept uh, that we have to do other things in a free society to counter hatred and advocacy of violence. Uh, let me just make one other point, And that is that um, another content neutral type of speech regulation. I say content neutral because if speech satisfies the emergency principle, it is being restricted not only because of its message, but also because in the overall context, it presents an immediate danger. And the Supreme Court has recognized several subcategories of speech that satisfy that emergency principle, including intentional incitement of imminent violence that's likely to happen imminently, targeted harassment or bullying, um, a genuine threat where the speaker means to instill a reasonable fear that you're going to be subject to violence uh, and hostile environment harassment where there is um, objectively offensive, unwelcome speech that is so severe or pervasive that it effectively deprives students of a reasonable, uh, of an equal educational opportunity. I mention all of those because distressingly, a lot of speech on campus has crossed that boundary line and has not apparently been subject to the discipline that it should be subject to. Um, the other major type of speech restrictions that are consistent with the content neutral principle uh, are content neutral time, place, and manner restrictions that it doesn't matter what you say, it doesn't matter what the content or viewpoint of your message is, this is not an appropriate place to be engaging in speech. So shouting disruptively in a classroom or at a library or having a sit-in in an administrative building, um, all of these are uh, kinds of expressive conduct that can and should be punished, but apparently are not being punished. And this should not go without saying, but unfortunately, it needs to be said, actual violence, you know, physical assaults are not protected speech, even if the purpose um, and the intent and the effect of the of the of the violence is to convey a message that is not protected and should vigorously be punished. Okay, you answered the next six questions that I had. So, so, that, so, so that was perfect. But I do want to piggyback. Yes, on I think we're said. done. Thank you for listening. Yeah, that yeah, covers the. Uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. This is this is really wonderful. 
Um, now, that was a, re a remarkable encapsulation, I think, of, of the, the issue, excuse me, and the broader legal dynamics at play. But Ilya, universities, especially private ones, are they bound by the tenets of the First Amendment? H how should universities sort of, and, and, and I have a follow-up to that, which I'd, I'd ask you to answer as well. You know, many universities have developed their own codes of conduct. Should they be premised on the First Amendment? Should they include other um, principles as well? Uh, right. Well, th those those questions are obviously dependent on each other. Private uh, universities are not bound uh, by the First Amendment. Now, I've testified before Congress earlier this year uh, saying that along with federal funding, which has lots of strings attached to it, which almost all universities receive, there are exceptions. Hillsdale is the most famous one that uh, doesn't even take federal student loans, for example. Uh, but uh, the, your Harvard, your, your MIT, your Georgetown, all of which have been in the news, um, you know, they're subject to anti federal anti-discrimination rules, as well as accounting standards, lots of different kinds of strings that are attached. And I was arguing at this congressional hearing that Congress should also attach free speech and, and First Amendment uh, related conditions onto uh, those uh, funds. But uh, that's that's just a matter of being debated. Uh, most schools, uh, not all certainly, but most schools do have now, by this point, on paper, pretty good protections for free speech and expression that largely overlaps amendment. And so, um, you know, this doesn't get discussed a lot because at least, you know, and we've seen these in some of the statements of the university presidents trying to clean up their uh, poor performance at the hearing saying, well, you know, our policies are about the First Amendment. And so they, they, they try to, at least on paper, match these standards that, that Nadine laid out uh, quite succinctly and, and comprehensively. The problem uh, comes in, in the uneven enforcement. Uh, and so uh, you see that speech that is favored uh, is protected, but but that which uh, is politically incorrect is not, and indeed is investigated and 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 punished and disciplined in in all sorts of ways. Now, hypocrisy is not unconstitutional, but it does violate uh, the the contract that these universities have set out in publishing their student handbooks and policies, uh, HR manuals in terms of employees and faculty and and all the rest of it. So that's uh, certainly a problem, and and all of these schools do have harassment and intimidation uh, uh, policies um, that generally match what's in the outside world in the employment context or otherwise that you know, speech as such is protected, including speech calling for genocide. Uh, in the exceptions to the First Amendment that Nadine listed, true threats, incitement of violence, there's not a calling for genocide exception unless, again, it's targeted and direct and imminent and all of those specifications. But uh, context does matter when the presidents were being legalistic. Uh, they didn't understand their concept because it wasn't a deposition. It was a public hearing that involved moral and political considerations as well. But to be legalistic, context does matter. So uh, one type of rally or chant or, or speech uh, in general in the public square is might be different than if it's in front of the Hillel or in front of a dorm where Jewish students are, are, are staying or, or blocking access, all of these other uh, considerations. That's when it starts shading into the perfectly appropriate time, place, and manner restrictions, which all universities do have, not to disrupt university programs, classes, speakers, uh, etc. And to take it into the non-university context to make it a little more evocative, uh, you know, what what is the the highest, the central core of the First Amendment political speech? 
uh, well, I can't go to your neighborhood in the middle of the night and with a megaphone tell you exactly what I think of Joe Biden and Donald Trump, uh, because that's disturbing the peace and uh, it's not improper to restrict my ability to do that. So similarly, to empower educational missions of these institutions, they can make all sorts of rules and regulations uh, that say you can't disrupt that mission in uh, in various ways. And the problem with what the the university presidents were saying is that they didn't start by saying, of course, such speech goes against our values. It's protected if it's just speech. Uh, or but but once it starts being directed or once it becomes assault or here's a new one. I don't know, Nadine, if you saw this, there was some I forget whether it's a Hillel or some other uh, Jewish related uh, agency. Somebody urinated uh, on the yeah. building. Well, that that urination is not protected, even though it quite clearly expresses disdain for what the organization is doing. Uh, but still, you can apply laws against public urination without running afoul of the First Amendment. Not to mention vandalism. If I may just add uh, two points to, first of all, the unequal adherence to free speech principles itself violates the viewpoint neutrality bedrock principle, right? And just to underscore how serious the charges are of lack of respect of free speech principles until they redound to the benefit of pro-Hamas speakers. Uh, let me tell you that FIRE, the organization of which I'm a senior fellow, and College Pulse for the last half dozen or so years have done thorough, thorough reports about the ranking of college campuses around the country in terms of free speech protection. This year was the most comprehensive yet. 248 universities and colleges were ranked on a multiplicity of factors, very, you know, driven by data science and subject to a lot of verification. It came out about a month or two ago. Out of 248 schools, Harvard was 248. And guess what? who came in in the second to the last place? Penn at 247. So the blatant opportunism of invoking free speech principles that had been completely honored in the breach in the past um, was really lamentable. Uh, those of us who support free speech say, well, let's use this as an opportunity to ratchet up Hopefully, moving forward, these campuses will seriously and consistently enforce their free speech principles in a viewpoint neutral manner. It seemed that Liz McGill was poised to move in the opposite direction. There's been some discussion about what exactly she meant uh, when she issued a video after her testimony, but it seemed to me that she was saying, we have been enforcing the First Amendment. Let's reconsider that. Yes. Let's reimpose speech codes yeah. that will protect Jews against we're, we're uh, gonna, hate speech, we're which get is there. not we're the, the opposite lesson to, to draw. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to get there momentarily. OK, I want to now apply some of these principles. Each of you sort of touched both of you on um, how some of these um, principles can be applied. But let's do this. OK, uh, President Shapiro. Um, you are sitting before the House Education and Workforce Committee. Representative Elise Stefanik asks you the following question. How would you respond? Does the calling for the genocide of Jews violate your college's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? Uh, that kind of abhorrent statement, which is against uh, our values, if it's targeted uh, against uh, Jewish students, absolutely violates our harassment uh, policies. 
Um, if it's just someone in the central square kind of yelling out to others or a group of people, that's a little different. Uh, but uh, so in so many of these instances, uh, there is targeted harassment, intimidation, uh, if not worse. And, and that's a problem and we're investigating. And President Strauss, do you, would you agree with that in the context of your um, college and university or have a different approach? Absolutely. Consistent with the moral and humanistic values that are core to our educational mission, any such statement that directly targets or threatens or harasses or interferes with the freedom of speech and equal opportunity for an education of any of our students uh, does violate our code of conduct and should be subject to prompt investigation and discipline because we cannot truly enjoy free speech on our campus, not to mention equality and inclusivity and human dignity, if some members of our campus community are threatened or harassed or bullied or intimidated by the expression of other students. That said, all students and members of the campus community are free to make general pronouncements about and to express controversial, even abhorrent views, um, uh, as long as they are not directly targeting or harassing other individual members of the community. Thank you, Presidents. I want to put a pause here for a second. Um, those of you in the audience, and I'm looking at the hundreds of you, if you have a specific question for either of our panelists, now would be a great time to put it in the Q&A um, function because we're gonna get, get, get to those questions in about 15 minutes or so. Okay, reverting back. You know, I think a lot of um, the criticism that came of the president sort of boiled down to two primary camps. Um, one was they were being, they were insufficiently protective of Jewish students on campus in their responses. And the other was they were inconsistently applying um, the speech codes. Um, and their codes of conduct, I should say, um, at their universities. But my sense it was the former that led to at least the uh, the resignation of Penn's president and not the latter, but perhaps I'm off base. Was what they said technically wrong? Um, and mindful they each gave slight deviations of a very similar script. Was it technically wrong? Was it morally wrong? What do you think was the most frustrating and outlandish component to their um to their responses to, to the question line of questioning there was a oh, lack of you. there was yeah. a lack of moral clarity and leadership uh, in spelling out what the values of the institution are uh they got into uh very curt legalisms you know you can be a lawyer and liz mcgill is a constitutional lawyer could have spelled out in greater detail some of the you know the lay of the land that Nadine did uh, at the outset of this program, for example, after saying that you know uh, th that kind of uh, sentiment goes against the the core mission, the core educational mission of open inquiry and and and, and academic freedom and and so forth. Um, uh, but uh, the the problem is, I think these presidents, uh, whatever their core values might be, it's not from this classical liberal heuristic to use an academic word that Nadine and I are speaking from. It's more the the postmodern DEI uh, lens of viewing everything through an oppressor oppressed class 
or hierarchies of privilege such that before you can understand whether certain speech is allowed or justified or protected, you have to understand whether that's coming from a place of privilege or not. Uh, and, you know, are Jews white or white adjacent? And how does that relate to the Palestinians? It's a very complicated, uh, uh, illiberal, I'm, I'm not saying it's leftist or it's illiberal. It's it's not the way that, you know, the, the, the Berkeley hippies that were taking over the uh, in the name of free speech, the, the universities uh, decades ago uh, would not have recognized this. And that's why the the boomer professors who were those Berkeley hippies now are afraid of some of these illiberal radicals that want to shut down speech and and uh, and and shut down debate and narrow the the Overton window. So anyway, these university presidents didn't understand the exercise and 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 did not uh, convey, uh, these traditional values of any institution of of higher education. Uh, you know, technically, we can say yes, that was a narrowly correct exposition of uh, where speech end and conduct begins. But that doesn't begin. To, that only begins to uh, to get at what the the, the larger, more complete uh, answer that was demanded in this circumstance was. I would just uh, I would just underscore going completely consistent with the free speech principle that Brandeis laid out in 1927, which was unanimously adopted by the Supreme Court in 1969 and has been adhered to since then. The, there is an answer even to speech that is constitutionally protected that has a message that is morally abhorrent and inconsistent with the values of the university. And that, you know, to use a term that lawyers often use is counter speech in an educational setting, we would say education, information, persuasion. You don't just say, well, you know, we can't punish it. Uh, end of story. And that was uh, such an impoverished view of what the mission of the university is. And, in, in, and indeed, that counter speech is itself an exercise of freedom of speech. We don't suppress speech that doesn't rise to an emergency or, you know, violate a content neutral time, place or manner restriction, but we have more speech. Um, instead there, and I've heard, by the way, I, I keep saying I hear reports, I don't have time to do factual investigations, so I'm not attesting to the accuracy. Uh, but I keep hearing that most universities are not having the teach-ins that we used to have in the Vietnam era. And yes, I do date back to the late 60s, early 70s, uh, anti-Vietnam protest era, um, that there haven't been discussions, there haven't been panels. Uh, I've questioned faculty members and administrators at many institutions, and they say uh, there's no appetite for that. And to the contrary, faculty members and students are fearful of, of setting up some kinds of discussions because of the, the fear of disruption or being attacked uh, for having what are seen as politically incorrect views. So this is the deepest violation of the crucial mission of universities to pursue truth, to um, instill uh, ideas and investigation and habits of research and discourse. I am so upset by what's happening on our university campuses, not only as a Jew, not only as a free speech advocate, but also as an educator to have groups of students at the most prestigious universities 
chanting conclusory slogans at each other is such, I couldn't be more antithetical to the ideal of reasoned discourse that these universities should be engaging in. Okay, I wanna go through actually a few examples and get a sense for how you uh, would interpret um, it in, in the current context. So maybe Ilya, uh, let's start with you. Um, you know, are these violations of free speech or academic freedom? You know, how should universities, uh, should universities take a disciplinary action on this or not? So uh, let's say shouting down a professor or a guest speaker at a lecture. Uh, yeah, that is should be subject to discipline because it's uh, what's known as a heckler's veto. Uh, it's not free speech to shout at someone that after the room has been reserved or a class is ongoing. Um, that that violates every every university has uh, policies against that, and they should be enforced, or the violations uh, will continue. And by the way, that reminds me of something I should have said earlier. Schools can have different kinds of policies. If you want to have a uh, a, a Christian school or a denomination, let's say it's a Lutheran school, you can say we're not going to tolerate uh, heresy or something. Or you can have a Marxist school and say we don't want to hear the free market perspective or something like that. As long as you announce that at the outset and enforce those rules evenly, that's, you know, we can evaluate that and criticize it or not, but we but but that's less of uh, of an issue with private schools. You know, Maybe, would you have a problem with that? Um, no, I agree as part of a First Amendment freedom of association that private universities are free to construct different uh, free speech rules as long as they are announced in advance so that people who decide to teach there or be students there make a knowing informed decision that that's the kind of you know limited free speech environment they're agreeing to enroll in. In terms of shouting down, that is a complete violation of the free speech rights of not only the speaker, but also of the audience members. It's really important to remember that freedom of speech is not only the right to convey information and ideas, but also the right to receive them. And your excellent question, Hanan, underscores that there's a difference between having great principles on paper and actually honoring them in reality. You know, the vaunted University of Chicago with its justly celebrated free speech principles and traditions. I just heard a report, again, I haven't been able to verify it, but I heard a very uh, disturbing report and saw a video clip of a pro-Israel um, rally on campus that was completely disrupted by uh, SJP and others who were shouting to the extent that the pro-Israel speakers could not be heard and when student organizers of the rally went to faculty members and members of the staff who were supposed to be policing compliance with the principles, they were told, oh, this is free speech. You don't understand it. Chicago has a very broad sense of free speech, and it extends to these counter protesters. You know, so it's not enough to have the principles on paper. They're, people have to be trained in them you know, from the, from the minute they get to, to campus. Right if not earlier. And the security staff and the administrators uh, have to be taught what exactly it means in particular factual circumstances. Okay, so here's another one. Um, Nadine, we'll start with you this time. Um, so ripping down a hostage poster um, off the, uh, you know, a wall on the quad on campus. 
that is unprotected vandalism. It's unprotected interference with other people's right to speak and to receive speech. Okay, Ilya, let's go to you. A group of students march into the quad and they start chanting, globalize the Intifada um, and from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Um, it's, if, if they're uh, not disrupting another group, if they're not disrupting a class, uh, that's, you know, meeting right in the building next door that might get drowned out. If it's just in the quad kind of, um, that's that's almost a, a, a speaker's corner type situation where, you know, nobody's reserved the space. Um, there's, there's not a university program going on. Uh, now, if they're menacing, stalking, following around Jewish students while they're doing this, that's different. But you didn't say that. You said they just marched there and they're chanting. Uh, in that case, again, assuming no disruption, assuming no targeted harassment, uh, that uh, uh, can be allowed. You know, it's really interesting. On that piece, the Wall Street Journal had an, um, an article the other day, which um, stressed that a lot of these kids who are chanting this don't even have a clear right. conception of right. what it is that they're actually. But by the way, Hanan. Uh, yeah. to, to to take on to conflate your last two hypotheticals, since this sure. was just an unscripted event, not a reserve space, what have you, if then counter protesters come there and start shouting, that's, you know, fair game, uh, because that's not, you know, we've reserved this space for our event, go do yours. Uh, that's just, um, you know, the public square sort of scenario. Again, the schools can uh, you know, the things can get out of control. If there are security concerns, there can be uh, re regulations about all this. Uh, and if they're like blocking the path of students trying to get between class or to the dorm or what have you. Uh, but again, just in the abstract, if it's just people shouting at each other, that, uh, you know, doesn't implicate some of these concerns that, that we've been talking about. That's a very, very important qualification. And as I understood the situation that was reported to me, there had been a reservation in advance right. of the pro-Israel speakers had been lined up and, and that security was provided uh, ostensibly for the purpose of, of permitting the event to go forward, which means allowing the speakers to be heard. Right. I'm being deliberately provocative here with regard to the um, chance on for Palace, uh, River to the Sea, because I'm curious to what extent intent makes a difference or um, receipt makes the, the primary difference. Meaning if a lot of students who are Jewish hear that turn of phrase yeah. and understand it through the lens of yeah. this is a desire to get rid of the state of right. Israel and all its inhabitants, but perhaps it's intended by individuals individuals to cite just freedom for all people in between, how should it be interpreted? Anand, as thank you. Violence? Thank you so much for pushing that, because in the 1969 case in which the Supreme Court unanimously adopted Brandeis's emergency test, it's a, a case called Brandenburg versus Ohio, the ACLU. Not only did the ACLU represent Clarence Brandenburg, a, a KKK leader, but our counsel of record was a certain uh, African-American woman named Eleanor Holmes Norton, who for many years now has been the non-voting um, D.C. representative in Congress. And she still is so proud of that decision. The Supreme Court expressly said even advocacy of violent or unlawful conduct is constitutionally protected only when it crosses the line to intentional incitement of imminent 
violent or lawless conduct that is actually likely to happen imminently, can it be punished on the ground that it's inducing um, either violence or emotional trauma? So, uh, you know, loathsome as, as the expression is, somebody would be free to, um, you know, just not targeted at a particular individual to say Israel should be annihilated and Jews should be killed. You know, that yeah, it, is considered a long protected speech. Bill, do you agree with that? Uh, generally, yes. But again, private schools might have different things. And, you know, the conclusion of Georgetown's investigation of me last year uh, came out with a report, which uh, is going to appear in, in my book, that transforms the standard to one of subjective receipt. Effectively, if uh, a listener is offended, then that creates a hostile educational environment, according to the Georgetown DEI office, the, the Office of Institutional Diversity, Equity, and Affirmative Action. So regardless of what's on paper, they have interpreted that, uh, and this is a, as a shot across the bow, I suppose, to everyone else, not just me, uh, to make that a much more chilling uh, subjective uh, standard, but not clear at all from the text of, of the law, which is part of the problem uh, of what happened there. Uh, and I'll... Um, uh, uh, further to Brandenburg and these uh, other context, uh, sort of KKK and 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 sort of uh, other odious things, um, in the context of cross burning, there are a couple of Supreme Court cases that elucidate this. Uh, RAV versus St. Paul uh, uh, said that you can't just prohibit cross burning. Period. Without without more. Uh, but then the Virginia versus Black case uh, a few years later said that cross-burning uh, near a Black family's residence was intimidation, and you can prosecute that. So context does matter in targeting uh, all of these standards that the that the court has uh, invoked, that, the, that that Nadine has has referenced. Uh, these things matter. Hanan, if yeah. I can interject a point that is pragmatical as well as consistent with the legal principles, because I don't want us to sound sure, like sure. You no know, legal technocrats the way the university yeah. presidents did. I have to say that I so strongly defend these free speech principles, including freedom for the thought that we hate, the anti-Semitic and the pro-advocacy of genocide speech, not despite being a Jew, but because of it. And here, I think I'm going to quote uh, one of the best books that's ever been written on this topic by Aryeh Nair called Defending My Enemy. And Aryeh Nair was the executive director of the ACLU when we came to the defense of the free speech rights of a group of neo-Nazis to demonstrate in Skokie, Illinois in the late 1970s, when Skokie had a large population, not only of Jews, but many of them were Holocaust survivors. Aryeh was himself a Holocaust survivor. His extended family in Germany was completely uh, slaughtered by the Nazis. His immediate family escaped to this country. And he wrote a book in which, you know, my paraphrase is not going to do justice to it, uh, but he explains that because Jews are such a tiny minority, we, along with every other minority, cannot depend on the majoritarian institutions of power in government to protect us. We are the ones who need the counter-majoritarian protection of individual rights, including freedom of speech, because if you give the government more latitude 
beyond the strict emergency principle. Before that, the standard was the so-called bad tendency speech that might lead indirectly to some harm. Uh, well, you know, what speech doesn't satisfy that standard? We can predict that those discretionary subjective standards are going to be enforced in a way that is not favorable to Jews, that is not favorable to Zionists. So um, please let's keep that long range positive impact uh, on minorities, including our own minority of these principles that also allow anti-Semitic speech to proceed. Right. So, um, but couldn't you won't make the argument that what happened, you know, um, in Skokie was a, a completely different scenario in part because it wasn't a college campus. And so, right. So it, that could something like that take place on a college campus today? Would you you probably well, say they, if, if the college had an open forum, that is, it's got a quad area that uh, is open to other members of the community, larger community, not restricted to those who have a tie to the campus, then it becomes a little bit the equivalent of, of Hyde Park or the open sidewalks, public sidewalks in Skokie itself. Uh, you have to comply with time, place, and manner restrictions, and there are opportunities for counter demonstrators. But uh, let me point out, as in all of these situations, you the goal of those who are seeking to suppress the speech is to suppress the message, right? To reduce the attention it receives. And as happened in Skokie itself and countless other situations, you know, good faith attempts to mute the message absolutely uh, actually have a counterproductive impact and gain right. more attention and more sympathy than it otherwise would have. So attempts to suppress constitutionally protected speech um, really are strategically unwise as well as unjustified in principle. So one, last one, one important difference on college campus, I agree with all that, but one important difference on college campuses is that uh, outsiders don't always have the same rights. You have to be a registered student organization to host an event, uh, to get funding from the student council, all of these different things that outsiders uh, can't do. Uh, and uh, in a lot of uh, some schools, campuses, some campuses do opt to make some do, some do. But 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 a lot of schools that are, have small campuses or urban campuses, there aren't even any public squares at all. It's all uh, uh, regulated in in various ways and have to be reserved and you know right. students subject to, to to student handbook and and all all of these uh, uh, different things. Uh, and in that case. Um, that gets you into there. I've seen a lot of questions in the Q and A. Maybe you're about to ask us about yeah, students yeah. for justice in Palestine, for example, or yeah. or a student organization that that starts running afoul. Or we've seen uh, numerous private uh, uh, schools, uh, Brandeis, Columbia, a few others, disestablish uh, students for justice in Palestine. Florida, as a public university system, started doing that. Then there were some legal concerns raised. They paused that. Um, that. That ha we have to distinguish between organizations and individual students. So those students who are members of SJP at Brandeis or Columbia haven't been expelled or disciplined. It's just the organiz organization itself has been deregistered or defunded or what have you. And they might have very good reason. If that organizationally is 
uh, violating rules on harassment, intimidation, or organizing things that disrupt the educational mission, that's a very good standard to take into account. In the public school uh, sense, and this is uh, why the, uh, the uh, I forget who it was, the, the chairman of the Board of Governors uh, in Florida uh, raised the issue of material support for terrorism. I think Governor DeSantis also mentioned this when he was referring to it. And that's because under both federal and state law, if an organization is providing material support for terrorism, that can be regulated and criminalized and have all sorts of consequences. It's a fact-based question. Is SJP, the local chapter, coordinating with the national SJP? Probably. Is national SJP coordinating with Hamas? I don't know. It depends. But the Supreme Court has said that it's broader than simply uh, violence. It, it can be if you're coordinating messaging or otherwise this material support. There are legal definitions that and that when you right. apply them are very fact specific. But do, you, but do you need proof of that material support in order to make a decision to like temporarily kick a student group like that off campus? Uh, I mean, you can use your best judgment, understanding that this will uh, go into litigation, most likely, although in Florida, SJP did not sue. So maybe they didn't want uh, some potentially damaging things coming out in discovery. Unclear. Um, okay. uh, and, and all of these private schools, I, I haven't seen any any lawsuits. So for whatever reason, you know, they're under advisement of the general counsel of the institution. That is you're making a judgment call about whether something like this would hold up in court. Well, I assume, you know, there there are criminal statutes involved here, and so there are due process concerns. I assume that there has to be some, I'm not a criminal law expert, but I assume that there has to be some type of probable cause to justify even a temporary measure, and, and then there has to be a prompt investigation, such as the prompt investigation you were subject to, Ilya. Um, <laughs> I, wanna, I just want to dive right in. Sorry to interrupt. I want to dive right into because we have about 12 minutes left, oh. and I know Nadine, you have a hard Hard stop. Diane Naar, and apologies if I'm, I'm butchering your last name, um, said some universities have allowed Holocaust deniers to speak. Isn't the role and mission of universities and faculty as educators of truth, facts, and history in opposition to this? If you're um, talking about if you're talking about a selective forum such as you know a professor invites a guest speaker or um, uh, somebody's invited to give a, a, a public titled lecture, then of course the university has to make content and viewpoint based determinations about what has pedagogical value for uh, the student body. Uh, on the other hand, I could see a context in which there is pedagogical value. Again, emphasis on context. So much of this is fact-specific. Where, uh, Let's say Deborah Lipstadter, another great historian of the Holocaust, wants to give students an opportunity to debate and challenge and question somebody who is, is challenging um, some of the objective facts and historical evidence. I think that could have great historical value, just the way the best way to prepare your case uh, as a lawyer is to argue against the or argue for as devil's advocate the other side so it all okay. depends is the answer i'll add one other wrinkle and that's that a university is under no obligation to involve to to invite everybody in the world or any particular person to speak but at least public institutions that are subject to first amendment uh, uh scrutiny if a student organization has invited someone the university cannot uh disinvite them based on viewpoint 
Um, now you can you can say that it's bad judgment to involve someone or have some discussion about whether it's appropriate. Protest them in various ways that doesn't disrupt the speaker and, and all that. Have counter speech, um, uh, but uh, there are different uh, nuances at play as to the question of whether the university can or should invite someone versus whether they can or should disinvite someone that a that a student group uh, has already uh, and all invited. This is different if it's like Ohio State versus Princeton, right? So right. Uh, uh, again, depending on what Princeton's policies are on paper, because Princeton could be subject to a breach of contract lawsuit or a Title VI lawsuit for that matter, because it receives federal funds. We haven't gotten into that, but if the university is uh, knows that it's uh, uh, you know, Jewish students are unsafe and it does nothing about it, then it can be liable under Title VI. And we've seen lawsuits against uh, uh, many schools. I don't think Princeton yet, but many schools have now been sued for Title VI violations for not yeah. doing anything to remedy an, an unhealthy uh, or a harmful uh, environment. And, and, the, and, the, and the U.S. Department of Education is also looking into some of these allegations in many universities as well. Anonymous asks, um, Ilya, we'll go to you on this one. I get the distinction between free speech targeted against specific people versus general hate speech yelled in the central square, sort of. If I'm Jewish person standing in Hillel, it's a real threat that compromises my psychological or physical safety and therefore crosses the line. But if I'm Jewish and walking by someone yelling the same speech in the central square of my college campus, I'm not. What if it's five or 10 or 15 people yelling speech of genocide against Jewish people in the central square? Which, by the way, I haven't necessarily seen. Right? I haven't seen any kill all the Jews that nomenclature. I don't know if anyone has seen that. I hope we never see that. I think in some uh, cities overseas, I've heard, heard reports. Yeah, maybe not on campuses. Maybe there's been some signs or something. But um, yeah, look, uh, uh, as a matter of First Amendment law, again, setting aside what any school's policy might be, but as a matter of First Amendment law, uh, hate speech, offensive speech, racial epithets, uh, all of that stuff is protected. There is no hate speech exception uh, to, and you should all read uh, uh, Nadine's book uh, to, to know that in more detail. Uh, but again, without targeting and imminence and directness, these kinds of standards, um, the fact that you might hear something that that offends you, um, you know, unless they're during that rally as uh, you as a Jew are walking by and all of a sudden the speaker at the rally says, hey, I think that person's Jewish, go after them now. That makes it something different. Uh, or if the speaker is saying, and so in conclusion, any Jew you see for the rest of today, make sure to go punch them, you know, something like that. That's different. But just these chants, again, is uh, is protected under our there's system. One, there's one other caveat, which is the so-called, which Ilya alluded to when he was talking about Title VI and the investigations that are some private lawsuits and some Department of Education investigations that you referred to, Hanan. Um, and that is, uh, you can consider the overall context on campus, including expressive conduct that considered alone would be protected. But if everything in context is creating um, such severe or pervasive hostile environment, intimidating environment for students. Let's say, you know, you can't walk anywhere on campus without hearing these chants. And there probably have to be, you know, other non-speech related uh, actions as well. Then you, at, at such that 
you are deprived of equal educational opportunities that could conceivably violate the law. I quite frankly haven't been able to read the complaints. I they're so long, but I think that's really important. So the the first one that I saw against NYU, the complaint is 88 pages long and it's detailing, you know, not just one or two demonstrations or chants, it's trying to set out the factual support for a pervasive and severe hostile climate. It's a, it's a tough standard and it should be a tough standard, but if in fact it does deprive Jewish students um, of the opportunity to go to class or go to the library because it, it's, it's such a pervasively hostile environment, I think that um, that should be uh, unprotected. And equal protection plays into it as well. That's made it into these lawsuits, too. If uh, 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 similar uh, uh, scenarios with people, uh, you know, chanting lynch all the blacks and, uh, you know, kill all the Arabs or something like that, if that if that in the past has been punished and disciplined, but here when it's directed toward Jews, it's let go, that de facto shows that you consider Jews to be uh, uh, less protected uh, by these rules than, than, than other minority groups. Sorry, do you consider from the river to the sea to be genocidal language? I think it, many people uh, have no idea of what it means, and um, and in the and it, it, different people can have different intents, and different listeners can have different responses. But I, in a way, I think that's legally irrelevant because even if it expressly said uh, eliminate the state of Israel and all the Jews living there, it would still be in many contexts constitutionally protected. But I think that what to me the question gets at is the deep ignorance. I think many people don't literally understand what the Arabic phrase means that is translated that way. They don't, don't hadn't understand the way many Jews and Zionists interpret it. Um, so what them the benefit of the sea. doubt. They don't realize, and, right, what, which river and which sea, even most literally. Yeah. So I see okay. that as an educational opportunity. In fact, I've heard accounts of very brave Zionist students going into these crowds and, um, and, and asking them, do you know what it means and explaining what it does mean? And I've heard accounts that some people have said, oh, I didn't realize that, you know, and, 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 and maybe not saying it anymore. Okay, we have just um, like uh, two, I think two or three more minutes. So I want to wrap up with, um, you know, one or two more questions for one for each of you. And, and that's kind of about the, the way forward. So imagine you are now the president of Penn. Um, lucky you. Um, do you, you know, I think there's a there's a sense that firing a president doesn't necessarily solve the deeper problems on campus. So what else would you do to address the current climate while preserving academic freedom, free speech, and open inquiry. Let's start with you, Nadine, because I know you have a hard stop. Well, uh, co coincidentally, there was a wonderful statement that was issued by a number of faculty members uh, and other leaders at Penn, I think I saw it yesterday or the day before, that says, let's use this as an opportunity to reset. And, and they, they proposed five basic principles as a new governing constitution for Penn in the hope of distinguishing it from all of the 
these other universities that have abandoned the traditional liberal enlightenment values that Ilya mentioned. I don't remember all of the details, but certainly a doubling down on academic freedom, open inquiry, a doubling down on uh, emphasis on truth seeking as the only mission of the university, rejecting social justice at activism or uh, as, as an alternative mission, which many universities seem to have subscribed to, hiring and admitting on the basis of merit uh, in pursuing excellence in the pursuit of truth, um, and uh, calling for the complete elimination of the DEI bureaucracy um, that has polarized campuses by classifying everybody and every idea in terms of power structures, oppressors and oppressed, um, requiring a study of anti-Semitism and the history of the Middle East and Middle East politics. So I think you know we should see this crisis, as the old saying has it, as an opportunity to combat both censorship and anti-Semitism, which I think are, uh, and completely believe, are mutually reinforcing goals. I can tell um, you've thought about this before, Nadine. Thank you so very much. I know you have to run, so I don't want to hold you. And I'll, I think I'll, I'll be quick. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I uh, I have, along with my colleague Chris Rufo, we have model legislation to uh, get rid of diversity statements and abolish these DEI structures. Just uh, yesterday or the day before, the Oklahoma governor wrote an executive order uh, to that effect. Legislation's more, more effective. Steve Pinker, the Harvard professor, uh, had a piece in the Boston Globe two days ago that is the most succinct. Uh, 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 statement of needed reforms. Uh, and as Nadine said, I have this up on the screen as I'm reading here, free speech, you know, clear policy is the stuff that, that FIRE has been doing. Institutional neutrality, that's the Calvin report from Chicago. Now, it's, a lot of institutions have said, okay, we can't take a perspective on Hamas Israel after having for you know a decade taking a perspective on every little thing in the news. So it's a little disingenuous. Nevertheless, going forward, institutional neutrality, nonviolence, recognizing the difference between conduct and speech or, or heckler's vetoes, viewpoint diversity, this goes to hiring and, and, and otherwise, and disempowering DEI because it's... Uh, you know, on its own terms, make campuses uh, feel less welcoming uh, and uh, and less tolerant. So uh, I commend uh, uh, Steve Pinker's uh, op-ed in the Boston Globe earlier this week. Okay, thank you so very, very much, Ilya, and thank you um, very much. I guess Nadine has left, but appreciate both of you for joining us and helping us sort of unravel and unpack all these various legal and moral and ethical complexities. I also want to thank um, the hundreds of you who joined us today uh, and encourage each of you not just to read the Boston Globe op-ed, which I'll make sure to check out myself, but also we've had a lot of content on this issue over multiple years in Sapir. So please check us out at sapirjournal.org. Um, this issue isn't going away, so it's really, I think, incumbent upon all of us to become as well-versed and educated in, in each of these dynamics as much as possible. And perhaps you can uh, start with some uh, winter break reading in the next week or two. Wishing everyone a happy Hanukkah on this final day. And again, thank you to our panelists, to, and, uh, to Ilya and Nadine, and thank you to all of you for joining us. Have a wonderful rest of the week. <laughs>